Welcome back to Africa Science Focus with me, Sally Amutabe. This is the second episode in our mini-series, Energizing Africa, where we investigate progress towards electricity, infrastructure and network access on the continent. Over the past few weeks, our reporter Halima Athumani has been mining for information about the East African crude oil pipeline which will cross 1500 kilometers from Hoima in western Uganda to Tanzania's port of Tanga just south of the Kenyan border. Uganda's oil is heavy, which means it will need to be heated so that it can flow through the pipeline. From the streets of Kampala, amid preparations for Uganda's presidential inauguration, Halima tells us more. It is a rainy and cold evening and I am on one of Kampala's streets, one that leads you to the Naguru police headquarters and not very far from the Kololo National Grounds where President Yoram Seveni will be inaugurated Wednesday. Oil exploration in Uganda began in the 1930s, but fossil fuel only came to be seen as commercially viable in 2006. The Ugandan and Tanzanian governments signed off on the East African crude oil pipeline along with the French firm Total and the China National Offshore Oil Corporation. While the governments say the project will earn their countries billions of dollars, civil society groups have raised concerns about environmental degradation the displacement of families and fears that falling oil prices could mean the project ends up losing money. In Uganda and Tanzania, many people have to rely on off-grid solutions to power their homes and businesses such as generators like the one you can hear behind me. With less than half of all the citizens connected to the national energy grids, I asked Fiona Naturinda from the Uganda National Oil Company where the energy to operate the pipeline will come from. Well, uh, this eco-project will generate its own power, first and foremost. Then it will require approximately 80 megawatts installed capacity of energy, and this energy will be required for uh, three things. One, a pumping, because we'll have pumping stations along the pipeline, and then so heating. It's going to be heated all throughout. Also, the third uh, purpose is for preserving the system, basically. Uh, preservation here, I mean, if the system is shut down for maintenance purposes, then you have to make sure that the, the crude oil is maintained at a temperature above uh, 50 degrees Celsius. So it means that the system will have to be heated at all times. In Europe, an 80-megawatt wind power plant can power up to 65,000 households. Many Ugandans still do not have, have access to electricity, same as Tanzania. I think in Tanzania about 35%. Uh, in Uganda, only 43% of Ugandans actually have access to electricity. Any chance some of this power will also be given to locals? Uh, well, it may not be the case because the power that is going to be generated is for the project. Yeah, but if at all there's excess power, it will be distributed to the grid. But I highly doubt. Uh, this oil in Uganda uh, is going to be evacuated in two ways. One is ECOP, crude oil for export, and the other way is to have this oil refined in the country. 
Therefore, uh, we are also planning to have a refinery project. This refinery is going to be located in Hoima, and it has the capacity of about 60,000 uh, barrels per day. Is there anything for Ugandans and Tanzanians to be happy about in terms of money, profit-wise, since UNOC is actually there to look at their commercial interests? Oh, yes. Uh, for example, there will be an improvement in GDP. In Uganda alone, we expect to reach about 40 uh, billion. That is in the year 2021. And we believe that uh, the GDP will increase to about uh, 9 billion. Uh, US, uh, USD uh, by the end of the construction phase. This is an increment of about 22%. To find out more about the economics of the oil pipeline, Halima heads to Makerere University to meet Dr. Fred Muhumuza. So this morning I am at Makerere University uh, where I am meeting the economist Dr. Fred Muhumuza. Going to do a lecture, giving them a lecture or something. You know, the, 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 the discovery of this oil in Uganda is exciting. Many people, we saw the numbers, uh, total taking 60%, Uganda and Tanzania 15% each, uh, Sinok, which is China, uh, saying they'll probably own, I think, about 8% of this project. Um, what do these numbers mean? Because it is a shareholding business, 100%, so it's good somebody has taken a big chunk like Total, but also, as we say, Total is looking at its funders. So it, it means that we have a very big risk. If Total can't convince its funders, then 60% of the project is in problems. So that's a big, big risk. You would have wished Total to have 30, Sinok 30, then Uganda and Tanzania sharing the other 30, and maybe out there, because you spread the risk. But now already that is a danger, that the risk is big. You talk about uh, containing Ugandans' excitement. Recently, I had President Museveni uh, excitedly say that uh, he's going to be an oil sheikh. Yes. <laughs> and, and for many Ugandans, that obviously means there's going to be profits. Yes. But if you read some articles by analysts, they're saying we're not going to basically get anything. Some people are arguing if we're making a profit, it's going to be 5%. We certainly will make something, but this is what we're saying, managing the excitement, managing the expectation. And when we say Ugandans, that now, as you've said, includes the president himself. I hope somebody has crunched the numbers to show to him that of the 100% that is going to be made, maybe 60% is going to go back into the production cost. So we're going to share the 40%. But when we begin to share the 40%, the business case demands, in our equity sharing, because we do not have money to invest into the project, ours is going to be just 5% or 10% or even if it's 15%. Now that begins to manage, are you comparable with Saudi Arabia? Are you comparable with Iran? Are you comparable with Venezuela? Are you comparable with Norway? But these other countries, they are using their own resources to do these investments. And then instead of the oil being a savior, would become a source of acrimony, contention, disruption, mischief, suspicion, which is not good. And then you eventually end up where many other countries have ended up. So it's still not here, not there. I was just reading a message this morning. I haven't double-checked it, but they are saying four banks are pulled out, in addition to three other banks. But these are core bankers of Total. These are core bankers of these kinds of investments. And if two, three core bankers pull out, even the other peripheral banks would say, so-and-so can pull out, who am I? So we still have a lot to do. The experiences we have of COVID money, the experiences we have of other monies, scandals here and there, and failing to enforce uh, accountability procedures and governance procedures in our systems may mean that even if we get our 30% or 20% or 15%, will it work for our people? Or are we going back into the Agoni, Sarawiwa kind of case in Nigeria? These are all issues to really work out before we can get excited that we are joining the oil shakes.
this time not being shakes, I don't know whether we are oil priests or something. With oil prices in decline and a global movement to end the use of fossil fuels, Dr. Muhumuza says investors may consider the pipeline a risky prospect. Going by the trends we are seeing, but we are back with the Americans championing climate change. So the, the, anything that has disruptions on climate change trajectories may meet challenges. So we still have problems out there. We would hope government takes them soberly and faces them squarely because we are not in this alone. Dr. Muhumuza says that the oil refineries will be located in a sensitive environment. Back to Fiona Naturinda at the Uganda National Oil Company. People are worried. I have you taken into consideration the environment, the national parks, the wildlife? ECOP, I can assure you that it will have minimal impact on the environment. First and foremost, I can state that pipelines are the safest and the least uh, greenhouse uh, gas emission intensive way to transport uh, crude oil. Uh, in Uganda, we were able to undertake an environmental social impact assessment study. It was very comprehensive, whereby it looked at all the environmental aspects. And all these have been consolidated, mitigation measures put in place, and everything will be done to ensure that the environment is safe to the extent possible. Families have already had to leave their homes to make way for construction of the pipeline. Here's Irene Winnie-Anying from the legal non-profit Advocations Fontaine. So we are speaking about villages. People, so the government says 10 districts, both Uganda and, and Tanzania. Some people think an estimated 14,000 households. I think uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, point to talk from because we are talking about 10 districts that have been affected. And it is interesting that you point out that about 14,000 households. And I think this is an issue that has to be taken critically, that the government should by now know exactly how many people have been affected. That data, that statistics has to be very, very clear. And it's what is not clear. It has not been documented. And the challenge with this is that uh, for those who have no idea about what is going on, they will go uncompensated because we don't have that data centralized. Talking of which, you represent these people to bring them the justice you think they deserve. What are some of the main issues that these locals are raising to you? One of it is access to information. You find the majority of the affected members of the community have no idea about when these projects will start when they will end, what is the impact of these projects to them or on them. But I think the right to participation is very key when it comes to these development projects. The affected community needs to have this information. What is the process? Our constitution is very clear on this in Article 26 that your land or property, you have a right to your land, your property, and it can compulsorily be acquired only if it's for a public good or for development as this, but as the owner of that land, you have a right to free, fair and adequate compensation. And this compensation comes, has to be provided to you prior to compulsory acquisition. If I feel the compensation is unfair, I have a right to contest it before the courts of law, which has to be sorted out before my land is compulsorily acquired. A gender dimension that I would like to point out is 
women are always left out. If you look at the nature of land tenure that we have in Uganda, or in most of those districts that have been affected by the echo, we have customary land tenure, but also you have our very own patriarchal systems that the men are the heads of the family. But how about the very, very women within that household, even if this compensation is provided, do they get a share? Are we sure that they are being given what is due and fair to them? Irene Winnie-Anying ending our report on the East African crude oil pipeline. And next week, we'll bring you the third episode in our Energizing Africa mini-series. Now, it's time for our Q&A segment. This week, we hear from Wati Petsa Hawatali in Malawi. Hi, Africans. Yes, my name is Wadi Batsa Kwatari, a student from Henry Henderson Institute in Blanter. My question is, how will technology be like in the next 50 or 100 years? Is it going to be beneficial or harmful? Thank you. I can tell you I can't. No one can totally phantom or imagine it. So I think it's going to be really, really beautiful. It's going to be effortful. It's going to be beneficial because there is no limit to what the good things that can come from it. But it's also not beneficial because it's going to make us less social. So a lot of us now, we're more on our phone and we, we don't have that human-to-human interaction. We interact with people online. But anything aside from that, the benefits are countless. Especially if we're looking at things such as uh, how are we going to be able to feed the population of the world. So without science and technology, coming with breakthrough technologies. There is no way we're going to be able to achieve that. Thanks to our resident expert, Obaisi Alano Lua, for helping us imagine 50 years into the future. If you have a science or technology question, get in touch with us directly. Send a voice or text message via WhatsApp to plus 254-799-042-513 and you too could be featured on Africa Science Focus. For more episodes, go to www.sidev.net or subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Today's program was produced by Harrison Lois. The editors were Fiona Broom and Jackie Oparafatoye. Africa Science Focus is a SciDevNet production created in association with your local radio station. This program was funded by the European Journalism Centre through the European Development Journalism Grant Program with support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation.